So let's begin in John chapter 10 for the first question. So you can turn over to the Gospel of John chapter 10. And this is a question that comes up from time to time because this is a difficult passage. And uh, it's important that we understand the context of what's going on here. The question is this. I'll ask it and then we'll read the verse. Uh, Pastor Brian, could you explain Jesus' argument in John 10.34 against the Jews who are accusing him of blasphemy? Now look at John 10.34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? You see the the difficulty there. So the question, could you explain Jesus' argument in John 10, 34? And then there's a follow-up. How would you explain this verse to Mormons who use this passage as evidence that we are all gods or someday will become gods? Again, if you're familiar with Mormon theology, that is one of their their views. Uh, So first of all, let's deal with the passage, what it is saying. Uh, Basically, here in this chapter, Jesus has once again claimed deity, and the Jews, the Jewish leaders, uh, taking issue with that, accuse him of blasphemy and want to stone him. So the person asking the question really asks it, well, can you explain Jesus' argument? Because he's given an argument or a justification. He is is, uh, dialoguing with the Jews and arguing against their view, uh, their view, uh, which was that he was... Uh, speaking blasphemy by claiming deity. So, Jesus' argument here, and the reason I read beyond verse 34, even though the question only asked about that, is because if you read verses 35 and 36, it becomes a little clearer as to what Jesus' argument was. Uh, basically, here's what he's doing. He quotes in verse 34, Psalm 82, 6. We won't take the time to go back to it. You can look at it. But in the context, Psalm 82, 6 is written to a group of judges of Israel. Uh, uh, high people in society, judges of the people. And in that passage, it says, uh, God says, I said, you are gods, the Hebrew term there, Elohim, which can be translated either God, singular, as in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, that's the word Elohim. Or it can be translated gods with a small g, uh, as it is here in our English in, in, in John 10, uh, actually, as I looked at this word this afternoon, it actually can be translated uh, in rare occasions, mighty ones. Uh, so it's, it's the primary word used in the Hebrew Bible for God, but it can be used God's small g plural or even mighty ones. In the context of Psalm 82, what the, the psalm is saying is this, you, the judges and rulers of Israel, have such an important role, I will call you Elohim. I will call you mighty ones. God's is, is maybe, it's a difficult because you're going from Hebrew to Greek to English here, right? So Hebrew in the Psalms to Greek in, in John 10 and then into English. So it would be justifiable to say, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods, you are mighty ones. So what Jesus is saying is this, verse 35, if he called them gods or in Hebrew, Elohim, to whom the word of God came. These were just judges of Israel to whom the word of God came. And God was willing to use a very exalted word to describe 
these rulers of Israel. So Jesus is arguing here from the lesser to the greater. And he's saying this, if that passage, if in that passage God is willing to use the word Elohim to refer to mere human beings, but give them such a lofty title of Elohim, then, verse 36, if God was willing to give such a title to mere humans to whom the word of God came, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So let me paraphrase it. Basically what Jesus is saying here is this. Listen, if God was willing to use the term Elohim to refer to mere mortals, although judges of Israel, important role, important people, if God was willing to use that title to refer to them, they are far inferior to I am as the one who was in heaven, sanctified by the Father and sent from heaven. So basically Jesus is saying, listen, I am not out of line. I am not overstating it to call myself the Son of God and claim deity because these were mere mortals and they were called Elohim. I came from heaven, so I am the Son of God. So he is again arguing from the lesser to the greater, this lesser group, mere mortals called Elohim to the greater, the very God, uh, uh, the second person of the Trinity uh, to call himself the Son of God is not an outlandish claim. It's not an overstatement. Uh, it is actually right in line with the facts that he was, the Father sanctified in him in heaven and sent him into the world. Now, the follow-up question is this. How would you explain this verse to Mormons who use this passage as evidence that we are all gods or someday will be? And my response to that is, now that we understand the argument, Jesus' argument, my response to that would be this. Actually, that was the very first lie of Satan in the garden. You know, God wants you, he doesn't want you to be God. He doesn't want you to be as God. You need to eat of this and you'll be as God. You'll be God. You'll be little, uh, maybe with a small G even. So that was the very first lie of Satan in the garden. And furthermore, here's the, the clincher. Nowhere, this, is, this idea, this Mormon doctrine, is nowhere else supported in Scripture. So in other words, my argument would be this. If that is such an important doctrine as you claim in Mormonism, don't you assume that if something is so important, God would repeat it many times in Scripture? For example, how many passages could you find in the Bible on prayer? Who knows how many? Myriads, because prayer is important. How many passages could you find on obedience? Dozens and dozens. How many passages could you find on faith? Dozens and dozens. How many passages could you find on the importance of the Word of God? Dozens and dozens. How many passages can you find on the idea that we will someday be gods? Zero. This one, if you want to try to twist it to say that. It's the same thing, by the way, that, that Mormon theology does with the statement of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Or else, what about those who are baptized for the dead? They take that phrase and they have created a doctrine called baptism for the dead where you can be baptized for your dead grandfather, grand, grandmother, aunt, uncle, and you can help move them up by being baptized for them. Again, whenever I talk with Mormons about that, my, my question to them is always this. You say that's what the verse is saying. Uh, okay, if that is such an, I mean, listen, that's important, right? If that can really happen, that's huge. If we can get baptized for people who've died and it helps them, that's huge. So show me where else God says that. You can't find any other passage. And that's, that, that should be proof enough that that's what 
not what 1 Corinthians 15, 29 is saying. It's the same thing they do here with this. They take a, a difficult passage, and you can see Jesus' argumentation here in John 10 is difficult to follow, to track with him. It eventually becomes clear as you work through and you look at context and everything, but at first glance it's like, well, what does this mean, you are God? So they take a difficult passage and build a doctrine on it that has no support anywhere else in Scripture which ought to raise the question, am I reading this passage right, thinking we can become gods? Or in the case of 1 Corinthians 15, 29, am I reading this right, that we can be baptized for dead people and it helps them? So that would be my response in talking with someone uh, from the Mormon church about John 10. I would want to first establish what the passage is saying in context and then from there go to uh, the idea of broader scripture. Where else can you find support for your idea that we will become gods? Okay, next question. Let's see. Where is it? Um, next question says this. Can you explain what 1 Corinthians... So we're in John. Turn over to the right to 1 Corinthians. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Acts, Romans, then 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, can you please explain what 1 Corinthians 6.12 means? Especially what the phrase, all things are lawful for me, means. So look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. And here's the phrase. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now again, this verse is confusing at first glance because we know as Christians, all things are not lawful for us to do. Lie, steal, cheat, commit immorality. So what does Paul mean by this statement? We might be given a clue by, what, by, by the way Paul begins the next verse. Verse 13, foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Most commentators agree that the first part of verse 13 seems to have been a popular proverb or slogan of the day. In other words, this was the slogan that was being used to justify immorality. Foods for the body uh, in the body for food, or, or foods for the stomach, stomach for foods. In other words, that's why God created food for the stomach, the stomach for food. That's why God created the body for, body for sex, sex for the body. So it really doesn't matter how you use your body. There's a, almost all commentators, if you, you, uh, you consult them, they agree that this f- first part of verse 13 seems to have been a popular proverb or slogan. And after quoting in the proverb, Paul responds to it by showing it's not true. That's why he says, but... Foods for the stomach, stomach for foods. Well, that might be the way you think you can live life, but God will destroy both it and them. If that is the way verse 13 unfolds, then it's very likely that verse 12 is following the same pattern. That would mean that when Paul uses the phrase, all things are lawful for me, he is quoting a common slogan that was used by some of the people in the Corinthian church, and he is responding to it. Further evidence for this view is the fact that Paul quotes the saying twice, Here in verse 12, did you notice that? All things are lawful for me, but, here's his rebuttal, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The Corinthians rightly understood that believers are not under the Mosaic or Old Testament law, but they took that to mean that you can just live any way you want to live, and there are no consequences. And this is not an uncommon response of some Christians when they begin to learn, hey, we're under the new covenant, we're not under the old covenant covenant, the Mosaic law, and Paul responded to the Galatians about this very issue. Turn past 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians, Galatians chapter 5. Look at how Paul 
response to this, this particular response to the truth that we're not under the law. Galatians 5.13, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. That's right. You're, there, you, you've been called to liberty. We're not, no longer under Mosaic law. But only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't assume that because you're not under Mosaic law, that means you can live any way you want to. Well, that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They had evidently been taught that as a believer in Jesus, we're under the new covenant, not under the old covenant, so they were using their liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. So Paul writes these words back to 1 Corinthians 6 now. He writes these words in verse 12 to explain them that they were misusing the purpose of their liberty in Christ, and their misuse was resulting in tragic loss and enslavement. So he says, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, probably their statement. But, listen, all things are not helpful. All things are not profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And Paul basically goes on to warn here, listen, if you try to live your life that way, thinking you can do anything you want, you are living, uh, you are living a dangerous life because you are exposing yourself to the possibility of enslavement to sin. And in this context, it's obvious he's talking about sexual sin and the enslaving power of sexual sin. In fact, he even makes the statement here in this, in this, this ch- chapter that, that, you know, all other sins are of a certain category. They're outside the body, but, but immorality is unique in its effect on the body. So I would say, in answer to your question, what is Paul talking about here in verse 12? I think he's re- he, is, he is responding to the Corinthians' Uh, misusing of their liberty there, as Galatians 5.13 says, you've been called to liberty, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. He is correcting their misapplication of their freedom in Christ, thinking they can live any way they want to. He says, no, because all things are not profitable spiritually, and all things, and I will not be brought under the power of any. All things are not profitable, all things are not helpful, and some things, sinful things, are enslaving. So I think that's what Paul is addressing there in 1 Corinthians uh, 6.12. Next question says this. um, Pastor Brian, when Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord, that's out of 2 Corinthians 5.8, by the way, what does that look like? Are we just a spirit without a body? Uh, Now, let me just respond to that part of the question thus far. Um, Not all commentators or scholars agree on this, but I I will give you... My, my, interp- my interpretation of the passages. And I would say, yes, in answer to your question, we are a spirit without a body. Because of 2 Corinthians 5 and some of the things Paul says there, some scholars, some commentators, some theologians would suggest that when we go to the be of the Lord in this intermediate state, that we are granted a temporary body. It's not our resurrected body. But Paul does talk about being clothed in 2 Corinthians 5. And, and, and the way he talks about it may not mean that it's the eternal, in other words, our resurrection body, but a temporary body. But I don't think there's enough evidence for that. I think the evidence is much stronger that uh, your question, are we just a spirit without a body? Yes. In other words, uh, the body sleeps. The soul never sleeps. Uh, It's a a misunderstanding of that concept when the New Testament uses the term sleep. The body sleeps to await resurrection. The soul, the spirit in the inner man goes to be with Christ. You remember when Stephen was being stoned, what he said? He understood this. Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. And Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, to depart and be with Christ is far better. He understood that immediately when he died, he would go to be with Christ. But 
But that's just the inner man, the inner person. Because we won't get our bodies until the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. Because 1 Thessalonians 4 says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we will always be with the Lord. In other words, we're all going to get our new bodies at the same time. All Christians will get their new bodies at the same time. At the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, commonly called the rapture. So, in answer to your question, are we just a spirit without a body? I believe we are. Now, this is so common. This is so common at funerals to hear someone say this. You know, they will get up and they're maybe giving a testimony about their dad or their brother or something. They say, well, I'm just so glad that now he's in heaven with his new body dancing on the golden streets. Well, you know, that's probably not true. But you don't stand up at a funeral and say that. It's not the best time to talk about this, all right? Sensitivity is an important virtue in the Christian life, all right? But it's probably not true. They don't have their new body yet. Uh, but that's a very common idea. That's a common thought. And it's often expressed. Uh, so we, we go, the inner man goes to be with the Lord. We will get our new bodies at the rapture. Whether you're dead and your spirit's with the Lord and the body's in the grave or cremated and ashes spread or whatever it is, or whether you're alive, we'll all get our new bodies at the same time. So the following follow-up question is, well, what are we doing during this time? Is this paradise? Yes, it is paradise. But interestingly, what we are doing is not spelled out in Scripture. Now, here's what most people usually do. And I'm not suggesting this is wrong. But they will go to Revelation 21 and 22, which talks about the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, and say, this is what people are experiencing now. They may be. Okay? I'm not saying they're not. But you just need to understand that technically... Revelation 21 and 22 is not now. That's after the millennial kingdom, after this present heaven and earth has been melted down by, by God, as, as Peter says, melted down and refashioned in a new heaven and a new earth. So we may have clues as to what people are doing now by looking at Revelation 21 and 22, but technically they're not experiencing Revelation 21 and 22 because it's not yet. Okay? So what are they doing? I mean, we can know from little glimpses in Scripture that they are in paradise, that they are praising the Lord. Um, maybe even a hint from like uh, Revelation 6, the souls beheaded under the altar, that they were aware somewhat of what's going on on earth. Uh, how long, O Lord? You remember that? They asked the question, how long, O Lord, until you basically, uh, you know, um, uh, make the wrong right? How long? So they were aware that, Things on earth had not been righted yet. So maybe our loved ones in heaven have some awareness. Uh, they're in the presence of the Lord. They're in paradise. But the fact of the matter is, we aren't told a lot. So the, the, the comment says it would be nice to picture what our loved ones are doing as soon as they leave this life. And it would be. And we can take, you know, take comfort in the fact they're with the Lord. They're in paradise. But beyond that, you can't, you know, it's a lot of speculation. You can't go very much beyond that. Okay, next question says this. Matthew 5.3 reads, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Please explain who is the poor in spirit. I think the, the simplest way to summarize this would be this way. Someone who is poor in spirit is someone who recognizes that he or she is spiritually bankrupt in and of himself. And I think that's why that is the First, right at the beginning of Jesus' Beatitudes, because it's in a sense 
the starting point. What is the starting point for being right with God? Well, the starting point for being right with God is recognizing you aren't right with God. Recognizing that you're poor in spirit. That is, you are spiritually bankrupt on your own. And you have nothing in yourself that can commend you to God. And therefore, you turn from self to the righteousness of Christ. And that's why it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people who justify themselves, the people who hold on to their own works, the people who try to make themselves right with God, theirs is not the kingdom of heaven. They exclude themselves. But the poor in spirit, that is the spiritually bankrupt, the humble, the ones who are contrary to recognize their spiritual inadequacy and bankruptcy are the ones who turn to Christ and thus theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, next, next question says this. Uh, the resurrections, do the Old Testament saints rise at the rapture? How many resurrections are there? Okay, again, this is a little bit uh, complicated. I'll try to, try to be as clear as I can. Uh, I do not believe from Scripture that the Old Testament saints rise at the rapture. I do not believe that. Now, oh, let me, a little side note here. Depending on your view of eschatology, okay, if your view is pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, pre-wrath rapture, then you would agree with what I'm suggesting here that Old Testament saints do not get their, uh, their bodies at the rapture. If you are post-tribulational in your view of the timing of the rapture, then yes, the answer would be yes. In other words, if Jesus, I, I quoted 1 Thessalonians 4 earlier, the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we will always be with the Lord. If that event is the same event as the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth, I don't think they are. But if it is, that is when the Old Testament saints will get their bodies. Okay? So in answer to your question, when will the Old Testament saints get their bodies? When will they be raised? At the second coming of Christ. That is not, in my opinion, the same event as the great gathering together under Jesus in the air, commonly called the rapture. In other words, I believe Scripture presents that the great gathering together under Jesus in the air of the church saints is a different event than the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. So, church saints, New Testament saints, Christians will receive, they will be raised and receive their new bodies at the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, commonly called the rapture, wherever you place that. Pre-trib, I think, the, I think the, the strongest evidence is for pre-trib. That's not what the question is. So whatever your view, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, all three of those are before the second coming of Christ to the earth. So that is when New Testament saints will get their bodies. Old Testament saints will get their bodies at the second coming of Christ to the earth. Because after all, what is the promise to the Old Testament saint? The promise to the Old Testament saint of reward is the kingdom. So when Jesus comes back in the second coming, he will raise Old Testament saints. Daniel, Joseph, Esther, go down the line. He will raise them to inherit their promise, which is the kingdom. But that is, in my opinion, a different event than the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 talks about resurrections. And it, it, Paul uses an interesting phrase. He says this, but each one in his own order. There is an order of the resurrection. So uh, Revelation uses the term first resurrection, second resurrection. First resurrection, 
is the good one. Second resurrection is the bad one. First resurrection involves each in his own order. Christ first, Paul says right there in that passage. Christ is a part of the first resurrection. Uh, uh, New Testament saints will be part of the first resurrection. Old Testament saints will be, and tribulation saints will be part of the first resurrection. All that's first resurrection. Second resurrection is the resurrection unto damnation. That is after the millennial kingdom to stand at the great white throne. And you can jot down, if you want to look at that, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, which describes the second resurrection. So in answer to your question, now, with all that as background, do the Old Testament saints rise at the rapture? No, I do not believe they do, uh, unless you place the rapture and the second coming as the same event. Okay, next question. I'm going to hold this one because the gentleman who followed up with me and said, nah, maybe don't, we can talk about this personally, but I'll see if I have time to come back to it. More of an application question. It's a really good one that I've been wrestling through uh, throughout the afternoon, but we'll see if we have time for it. Here's the question. We have several youngsters that ask questions. Uh, one of them said this, could the Pharisees and Jesus have gotten along or worked together and Jesus still have been killed somehow? And the answer to that question is yes. It, it wouldn't have mattered had the Pharisees and Jesus gotten along, Jesus was going to be killed. I mean, we know that because he is, Revelation calls him the, the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. It was in God's plan eternally that Jesus would die. So uh, the Pharisees, as we saw from this morning, were part of the equation that God used for his son to die, but it wasn't dependent on that. If the Pharisees, and this is hypothetical, if they had all repented and they worked together with Jesus, would Jesus still have, someone killed him? Yes. He still would have died. He still would have been killed. So that's uh, from a, a youngster, a young man. All right, next question is this. Uh, you'll just jot these down. You don't have to turn to them. And there's a couple passages, uh, several actually. Uh, 1 Samuel 11, 8, 1 Samuel 15, 4, and others that, that list this. Here's the question. Why was Judah's army numbered separately from Israel's army? Now you remember, when the kingdom divided in 931 B.C., the northern part of the kingdom was called Israel, the southern called Judah. That was 931. And then 722, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. 586, the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians. So why was Judah's army numbered separately from Israel's army even more, even more than 100 years before the divided kingdom? So in other words, if you were to look at 1 Samuel 11, 8, 1 Samuel 15, 4, this is before the divided kingdom, and yet you have a numbering going on as if it was a divided kingdom. You understand the question? It's a, it's a good question, insightful. The answer is actually quite simple, and it is this. It is almost certain that 1 Samuel, though it is describing events before the division of the kingdom, was written after the division of the kingdom. It was written after 931 B.C., so written from the perspective of someone who knew what happened after that time, and so he sort of superimposes on it Israel and Judah, even though at that time when it was happening, there was no Israel and Judah because the kingdom was united and not divided. So it was written, and of course, this is the way many books of Scripture were written, right? They weren't written at the time they were happening. Look at the Gospels. When did John write his Gospel? 90, 95? That's like 60, 65 years after the time of Christ. So the books were often written way later. 1 Samuel written after 931 B.C., but writing about events prior to 931 B.C., and so that's why there's a separate numbering of Israel and Judah. Okay, next question says this. Uh, uh, this is kind of coming off of this morning's passage about Jesus being angry at the people for their hardness of heart. 
And the question says this, with the uh, sovereignty of God and hardening of people's hearts for God's glory, i.e., and he doesn't have this in here, but I'm sure he's thinking of Romans 9, you know, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will harden whom I will. So with the sovereignty of God and hardening of people's hearts for God's glory, how did or why did Jesus get angry at their hearts? Remember we saw that this morning. Only explicit statement in all the New Testament telling us Jesus was angry. Other places indicate it, but that's the only passage that says he was angry. So the question is, if it is true, and this is the assumption, not saying it's not true, but the assumption, if it is true that God is sovereign and he's sovereign over people's hearts and he hardens people and softens people and opens people's eyes, then why did get Jesus get angry at their hearts? It's a great question. I think it's a valid question. And here's the answer. Because they are responsible for their hard hearts. Truly, authentically, and genuinely responsible. Please understand, beloved, God did not compel them to choose wrong against Jesus. God did not force them to choose wrong. For example, in the case of Pharaoh, which Paul quotes in Romans 9, I just went through the story this week, and it's crystal clear. Go back and read Exodus. The text is so clear. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then after several times, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But because we know what God said to Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, we assume, though the text doesn't say it, God started hardening his heart immediately. That God just gave Pharaoh no choice. Pharaoh was a robot. He was a machine. God hardened his heart. And now Pharaoh's somehow not responsible. Or he's responsible and shouldn't be responsible. The text is absolutely clear. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So so understand that divine sovereignty does not override the genuineness of human volition and human responsibility. It's our logic that says that is the case. Bible doesn't say that's the case. Luke 22.22 says this. Jesus said, The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. In other words, and he's referring to Judas in in that context. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. In other words, it it was prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed by one of his own. So it was determined. It was going to happen. Oh, okay. Then that means Judas was a robot. He had no choice. And because he had no choice, no responsibility. Wrong answer. Because the very next phrase, Jesus says, Woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. You got to leave it there. God planned it this way. Judas had a choice. He made the wrong choice. And woe to him. He will receive judgment that he deserves. Not judgment that God set him up for by not giving him a choice, but he was just a robot or a machine, and then now I'll judge you as a volitional creature. No. He chose to take that money to betray Jesus. And he's responsible for that choice. And in fact, I would say this. There are clearly, and this guy's wrestling with the issue of the sovereignty of God and things like election and predestination, etc. Listen, there are plenty of passages in the Bible that teach the sovereignty of God, election, predestination. And I believe every one of them. And I believe them as they're written. I don't try to soften them and say, well, God looks forward in time to see who's going to choose him, then he chooses them. That's not the election of Scripture. Okay, I don't, I don't, that's not the election of Scripture. I believe every passage on election and predestination, sovereignty of God. But I will say this. The fact of the matter is, there are more passages in the Bible, I can show you clearly, there are more passages in the Bible that address human responsibility and human volition by far than there are passages that talk about election and predestination. So don't allow, I'm not 
I'm not suggesting you should soften your view of election and predestination if you believe it. In fact, you should believe it. It's in the Bible. But you shouldn't believe it to the canceling out of the multitude of passages which clearly express human responsibility, genuine human volition, and then the choices that are made, you, everyone is responsible before God for those choices. So that's, that's what I would say in answer to your question. Jesus didn't harden those people's hearts and then get angry at them because he hardened their hearts in the text we looked at this morning. They chose against Jesus, and that's why he was angry with them, for their hardness of heart. All right, next question says this. Pastor Brian, are there any qualities, characteristics, abilities, or privileges that Jesus permanently has laid aside at his incarnation? That is, any qualities, etc., that he possessed before the incarnation that he no longer has and will not regain in his post-resurrection existence. I, I can answer that question in one sense by saying, no, I don't think that is the case. But let me kind of turn it around and answer it a different way. I would say this. Paul teaches us in Philippians chapter 2 that the incarnation involved addition. We usually think of it in terms of subtraction. It was addition. Jesus added a human body and a human nature to the person who existed as all, from all eternity as God. So contrary to the way we think, we think Jesus gave up something. He gave up deity. He gave up omniscience or omnipresence or something. That's not the way the New Testament presents the incarnation. It's not subtraction. It's addition. Now certainly, Jesus gave up heaven's glory. 2 Corinthians 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he is rich, yet for your sakes, he be, our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Sure, he gave up heaven's glory. He has that back now. But it's not that he gave up something that he doesn't get back. Rather, he added something that will never change. And that is, so maybe another way to answer your question, is there anything that has changed from his eternal state past for eternity future? And the answer is yes. Because he will be a man for all eternity. He will have a body for all eternity, which he did not have in eternity past. He will have a human nature for all eternity, which he did not have in eternity past. So the incarnation was addition, and that addition will remain changed for all eternity. In fact, John says in 1 John 4 that anyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and he uses a perfect tense verb there, has come in the flesh and is still in the flesh, is not from God. If you deny the eternal, the ongoing eternal humanity of Jesus, John says, you're not from God. You're not of God. So that is the change that is eternal. Not so much a change of what did he give up that he didn't get back, but what did he take on that he will never give up? His humanity. His humanity will be with him for all eternity. All right, next question. Here's a couple of, uh, from a, a couple of youngsters, age eight. Um, and we've all wrestled with this one, so whether you're eight or 88, you, you still wrestle with this one. Why did God make Satan? And we, we've all wondered that kind of thing. And short answer, I would say this. First of all, understand he didn't make Satan. Not as the way you perceive of him now. You know, the enemy of God, wicked, vile, uh, murderous. John 8, you are of your father the devil who is a murderer. That's not the way God made him. He made him as an angel who would serve and worship God. But Satan chose otherwise. You look at Isaiah 14 five times in that text. Satan says, Lucifer called there, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, five times. Satan determined to make his choice. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to put my throne. And he, basically, he wanted to rival God. 
So God made him as an angel who would serve and worship God, but Satan chose otherwise. And God allowed, ordained, whatever term you want to use in there, God ordained this as the best plan. In other words, as a youngster, who, wherever you're at, I, can't, I know you're here tonight, but if you're wondering, well, you know, could there have been another plan? Could he have not made Satan? Sure. Did God know Satan was going to do that? Yes. So he, he ordained that as the best plan. And probably it's safe to say that not until eternity will we totally be able to understand that. But God... That was the best plan. of. If you could just theoretically say God had a hundred different plans he could have instituted, you know, making man but no angels, making angels but no man, making both angels and man, allowing angels to fall but not man, allowing man to fall and not angels, allowing neither to fall. I mean, there are myriads of options. The plan that God chose was the best plan for his own glory and the good of his people. And a follow-up or similar question, again from a youngster here, says this, uh, why was sin part of God's plan. Same little gal that asked this question. So I'll answer it very similarly. God chose to create both angels and humans with genuine volition. He did not make angels as robots. Angels are volitional creatures. They make choices. He chose to create both angels and humans with genuine volition. Both angels and humans use that volition to rebel against God. And God ordained, allowed this as the best option. Again, maybe you're wondering, could God have made us, you know, as robots or machines that we had no volition and would not have chosen against him? Absolutely. He could have done it that way. That's not the way he chose to do it. That was not the best plan for his glory. Now, we can sort of philosophize as to why and all of that, but, but, but that, the fact is that plan, the one, the eternal plan of God that is unfolding now is the one that's best for his glory. Then the final question, I'll just touch on it because I'm going to talk individually with this gentleman, uh, and he said that in an email later in the afternoon. Um, co coming from this morning's uh, message, uh, what cases do you see as, as very appropriate for you and our elders to demonstrate righteous anger? You remember Jesus was righteously angered. So are there cases today? Yes, there are clearly cases today uh, that would fit into the category of righteous anger. The difficulty, as I said this morning, is our anger, it's, it's really hard to justify and say that our anger is always, or ever, maybe that's a better way, ever a pure anger. That there's no self in it. Jesus' anger that we talked about this morning, there was no selfishness, self-centeredness, self-serving. It was purely a righteous anger. So could there be, are there cases where the, the glory of God, the, the, the name of God is being uh, besmudged or the people of God are, are not being, you know, are, are just uh, so misrepresenting him that there's a, a validity of righteous anger? Absolutely. But it's such a difficult and fine line. And so follow-up, do you believe modern pastors are encouraged, taught that there are times they should be angry, or are they usually taught or expected to be or look like nice guys who never get angry? Well, it's a valid question, again, because uh, maybe there is sort of a, an expectation, uh, a popular expectation that's not necessarily, doesn't line up with Scripture. The difficulty of this, as I've thought about it off and on throughout the afternoon, is, again, I don't know that I could ever say that I know when I was angry at such and such a time, it was completely pure. I would like to say that. Maybe there have been times like that, uh, but I don't know. And I'd rather err on the side of humility and say, when I get angry, my guess is there's probably some not all righteous anger in that. 
And then the final follow-up to that was, have you ever corrected another leader for not showing anger when they should have? And the answer is, I never have, and I don't know if I ever will, because, again, I, I don't know the, the heart, and I don't want to pour gasoline on a fire that may be there, encourage something I shouldn't be encouraging. Because if they're, they're who they ought to be, and the, the, the right focus on God, the right sensitivity to the things of God, then maybe you could make the case, maybe, that if there is a case that sh- or a situation that should result in righteous anger, it will probably come forward. Sort of like this. Do you need to teach a husband or a wife godly jealousy for their spouse? You probably don't, right? You probably don't need to say, you ought to be a little bit more jealous, you know, you know that your wife is doing it, your husband. You probably don't need to you know, throw any fuel on that fire. But if it's a really a godly jealousy, probably doesn't have to be taught. It's probably going to arise if they're a, a man of God or a woman of God in the, the, the proper scenario. So, uh, again, we're going to talk personally. I know the gentleman who asked the question, good things to wrestle through. But, but the anger issue is a tough one. And like I said this morning, it's interesting to me that the only passage in all the Bible that explicitly states Jesus was angry is that Mark 3 passage, the only one. Others hint at it, indicate it, but they don't state it. So uh, we do have Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. So it's obviously possible to be angry and do not sin. But boy, uh, as frail creatures, that's a, that's a fine line and can be a slippery slope. So great questions. Let's stand and close in prayer tonight. Father, thanks for our time together this evening on this uh, somewhat cold winter Evening, thank you for a chance to sing your praises and music as we were able to do earlier and then to take time to look at your word. And uh, wow, what a diversity of topics and subjects. And so really no, no common thread, not that there would be in a, a situation or circumstance like this of questions. So may we just each take from this uh, what you would have for us where we're at. For some people, maybe one question, one issue would be far more pertinent, far more helpful far more challenging or edifying. And for another person, it could be a completely different topic. But uh, we thank you that your word does speak to our hearts. It does speak to our lives. It does speak to uh, our uh, situations in life. And so uh, thank you, Lord, just that as we're here tonight, coming from all these different circumstances, situations, contexts of life, uh, that your word does equip us. And we want to always use it properly and understand it well. So grant us the grace to to do that as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.